Welcome to another edition of Walking the Labyrinth. I'm your host, Keith Burton. Our goal, as always, is to give you an insider's look into the world of employee communication and engagement, and to dive deeper into issues, trends, and current events that are affecting the public relations profession. On this edition of Walking the Labyrinth, we'll step into the world of the cognitive workplace, where digital transformation is driving collaboration and engagement to connect us with people, information, and actions that employees need to be successful. We'll look at the problems and reputational challenges that can arise when CEOs and communication professionals mix political views with business. But first... I led a project for a major healthcare company to assess the skills and competencies that public relations leaders will need in the future. We identified a group of best-in-class companies, those being GE, McDonald's, Cargill, Toyota, Chevron, IBM, and Southwest Airlines, and we interviewed their leaders regarding the skills, competencies, and capabilities they view as essential to the work of their teams. In my in-depth conversations with these leaders, we identified more than two dozen skills. Those rated highly by every leader included strategic thinking, knowledge of the function, knowledge of the business, creativity, collaboration, written communication, and tactical implementation. But what about mentoring? When it came to this critical skill, not everyone rated it as highly as I had hoped and expected, which caused me to ask, why? Is it because mentoring isn't valued in certain corporate cultures? Is it because there's a shortage of people willing to serve as mentors? Is it because people don't know where to find a mentor or they can't make the time for it? I don't believe it's any of these things. In truth, it's more about our willingness to enter a relationship with a new teacher, advocate, and counselor, which requires us to be more transparent and more vulnerable as we share the truth of who we are. It was Winston Churchill who once said, We make a living by what we get. We make a life by what we give. That's the walk of a true mentor developing today's talented men and women into tomorrow's leaders. To go deeper on this topic, I had a conversation with Brian Price, one of the top young leaders in public relations, about the importance of mentoring emerging professionals. Price is a past president of the 11,500-member Public Relations Student Society of America, and today he serves as digital marketing manager for Starwood Retail Partners in Chicago. He previously served as community manager with Edelman on the client service front. He also has worked on behalf of the Planck Center for Leadership and Public Relations to develop a new group of millennial leaders known as the Young Pros, who are spearheading key initiatives that will link Planck Center trustees more closely with the next generation of leaders. Here's Price on the power of mentoring. You know, if you think about the, the mentoring that I've received, it has been so instrumental in my career as I get the opportunity to, to bounce ideas that I have, not only for, it could be a, as simple as workplace, you know, tactics to help my hour by hour work, or it could really help me with my, my viewpoint overall and how I see the profession. I think the mentors that I've had, and I've had uh, a number of them, uh, throughout the last several years as I've gone as a student to first couple years as a professional and just helped me understand where we've been as a profession, which I don't think I would have had that knowledge. And I don't think you can go into 
uh, a situation in, in a workplace. And for me, I changed jobs uh, about two months ago. Um, and I'm able to come in and kind of understand where we've been as a profession, where we've been in communications marketing and the IMC approach and using data and getting a seat at the table for the C-suite. All these things, I have a, a history and understanding of that through my mentors. And that helped me be more realistic in what I propose that we do. And in some cases, I, I think I just have a better understanding of how far we've come. And, and it helps me understand what's appropriate on when to push for more and when to say, well, we, we've already taken huge strides. We can't, we can't get all of it in one day. Let's, let's continue with the, with the status quo. That's helped me tremendously, but also with career mapping. And that's, that's really where I, I see the most benefit long-term for me. Price said his mentors have helped him understand how to be patient when the pace of progress is slower than he would like, when to push harder and more assertively for greater responsibility, how to accept, interpret, and act on feedback and criticism, and how to develop new behaviors and build new strengths. What do mentors need from those they counsel and coach? They need context to understand why the mentoring relationship matters, what the mentee needs and expects, and how the two parties will work together. Being an effective teacher requires knowledge about the subject matter and the students we teach. Being a mentor provides us with an opportunity to become better coaches, better counselors, better listeners, and better leaders by learning how we can advance the goals of those we lead while creating a learning environment for both parties. Second, I think it's important for us to observe that mentors have their own needs that can be met through reverse mentoring. These needs may include such things as gaining knowledge and information regarding emerging technologies, social and digital media trends, as well as insights about millennials. I want to provide my mentors with any type of knowledge I can so it's not very one-sided. Um, you know, in my opinion, and Keith, I think you'll agree that a good mentor isn't, isn't necessary. That's not the reason why they're there. But I do want to provide that value. And for me, and I was, I was striving to do that, what I found really where we can be really helpful as young professionals is to offer the viewpoint and the mindset of a millennial. Uh, we're making up a, a larger percentage of the workforce. Um, so it's not always insights about how I think, but just knowing how my peers think, whether it's you know, the friends that I have in different industries, and, and how they like to approach their work. How many of my friends or, or my colleagues really do want to work from home and have that type of flexibility? It, it could be at the flexible workplace. It could be, uh, you know, like how, how big of a deal is it for a company to offer free lunch uh, more often, or, or there's food around, or there's opportunities to travel more, travel less. Um, that's, that's where I found where, where new professionals can provide value to senior leaders as they look to evolve their workplace because um, they have the power to really make those changes. And what do future leaders need from us? In a word, Price said, it's perspective. I had a lot of help from my mentors in perspective, and that helped me a lot. Um, you know, I got a lot of advice that said, go agency first. Um, and I was kind of also told that is, it's a little bit, not necessarily cookie cutter advice, but just very common advice and not something unique to me or my skills. Uh, but that was told that by a lot of people. Um, and 
and the pros and cons were, were something that, that I had to weigh myself. But, you know, when you get this kind of advice and perspective on this is this is what is considered to be common. This is considered unique. You know, if you go into a certain industry, you need to be, that's what you're interested in. You need to know that it, it's a lot more competitive. I think that, you know, I, I was a young guy in college and I thought, you know, sports PR would be really cool. Like, why don't I do that? And then I kind of kind of understood from my mentors that that's, that's a really niche market and it's tough to break in. And I said, well, I, I like other things. I don't have to, I don't have to go the hardest route I can find. There are, there are other things I can do out there. Um, so I think what young professionals need is, or students coming out of college, I should say, need is kind of the perspective that, that senior and mid-level people can provide that big picture that, that we just can't see when we come out. One of the other things my mentors helped me understand coming out of school was the different cultures that exist in different workplaces too. And I think that that's a tremendous piece of advice that any any senior student or soon to be graduate can have as they go out and, and search. Um, how is how is a Weber Shanwick different than a Golan, than an Edelman if you've got your eye on big agency? Or how does uh, a midsize different from a boutique um, in general? And some of those you have to kind of rely on on generalities but most of them from what i've understood sort of fit the mold so you you kind of get that and you say what's what's a good fit for me based on all these things um my my mentor my mentors have described to me and from a personal side everything i heard laddered up to me is like i'm a fit for big agency that's something i would enjoy i would enjoy the, the chicago market based on on what types of clients are typically there. I mean, these are these are things that I just would not have known had I not had people tell me and people I could rely on. So that's where mentorship becomes so important for me. Finally, we know that critics often demean millennials by portraying them as spoiled, lazy, immature, and unreasonable. That's certainly not my experience nor my perspective. My own experience is that millennials do want a great deal more feedback, certainly more so than past generations, and they have high expectations of their leaders and the organizations they support. Given these perceptions, mentors have an even greater responsibility to help these young men and women develop and harness their talent and to become more mature professionals. Price, for his part, knows what good looks like. However, he's not always certain he can meet the high standards that he's set for himself because he may lack the battle-tested knowledge or experience to move forward. This gap between what we aspire to become and what we can deliver today is frustrating for young leaders who aspire to greatness. Mentors can provide important insights and help build greater patience and understanding of what's needed to become best in class and to perform at the highest level. There are, there are millennials out there right now um, and a lot of us, um, having grown up, having, you know, going out and grabbing that mentorship and learning, I think we have, we, a lot of us have good taste, and I hope that, I hope I can be one of them, to have good taste and understand what is good and, and what is not, what quality looks like, but not always, not, I guess not yet being capable of providing that type of quality yet. So we know when our work isn't good enough, we know what good work looks like, but we're not at, we're not there yet, and we maybe be impatient on getting there because we have an understanding of of what great can be. 
So from, from a senior leader perspective, uh, one, teaching us a little patience, uh, but also showing millennials how we can be proactive in getting the quality that, that we know is out there and exists and that we're capable of doing it. As we close this segment, I want to take this opportunity to remind our listeners that the mission of the Planck Center is to develop and recognize outstanding, diverse public relations leaders, role models, and mentors as we work to advance ethical public relations in our evolving global society. Our signature program is the annual Milestones and Mentoring Dinner, during which we honor and recognize the men and women in public relations who lead by exemplary behaviors. We invite you to join us for our 8th Annual Milestones and Mentoring Dinner, which will be held on Thursday, October 26th at the Union League Club in Chicago. Please visit our website, www.plankcenter.ua.edu, for more details. Now, here's our producer, Jarrett Burton, with a special report for News on the March. News on the March! The 2016 presidential election proved to be one of the most controversial and divisive in modern history, and the shockwaves are still being felt from the halls of power in Washington to the factory floors in middle America to the boardrooms of Fortune 500 companies. As the evening of November 8, 2016 drew to a close and it began to dawn on people that, for better or worse, Donald J. Trump was going to be elected the 45th President of the United States, many took to social media to proclaim their joy, sadness, optimism, anger, or fear. Facebook, Twitter, and the like have given the world a chance to sound off, to be heard, to project their opinions out into the ether, which raises an important question. What responsibility do CEOs and communications professionals have regarding their opinions and how they may affect the reputation of a business? What ethical entanglements could arise from overt political preference in a free market? Tank, for instance, Pepsi CEO Indra Nui. A day after the election, Nui gave an interview referencing questions from her daughters and employees following election night. They were all in mourning, she said. Our employees are all crying, and the question they are asking, especially those who are not white, are we safe? Women are asking me, are we safe? LGBT people are asking, are we safe? I never thought I'd have to answer those questions. Nui also criticized the president-elect for his alleged mistreatment of women and language directed at them on the campaign trail. Quote, forget the Pepsi brand. How dare we talk about women that way? Why do we talk that way about a whole group of citizens? Nui did, however, acknowledge the democratic process and spoke of unifying the country after such a divisive election, where the damage had been done. Within days, Trump supporters had already started calling for boycotts of Pepsi products. Or we could look at the case of Grubhub CEO Matt Maloney, who the day after the election sent an internal memo to Grubhub employees stating that any of them who had voted for Trump should feel free to resign and that the company would not tolerate hateful attitudes in the workplace. This memo was leaked to Fox News, which took it public, and Grubhub was soon feeling the financial repercussions with their stock down 5% within 24 hours of the story breaking. Maloney had to later walk back his statement, indicating that his original comments had been misconstrued. 
I want to clarify that I did not ask for anyone to resign if they had voted for Trump, he said. I would never make such a demand. To the contrary, the message of the email is that we do not tolerate discriminatory activity or hateful commentary in the workplace and that we will stand up for our employees. Pepsi and Grubhub weren't the only companies feeling the heat. In the days after the election, a list began to circulate, originating on a pro-Trump portal on social news aggregation and discussion site Reddit of companies that had been unkind to the Donald during the election cycle and thus were deserving of boycott. Those companies included Macy's, Amazon, Dell Computers, Mondelez, Netflix, and Starbucks. Grassroots corporate activism, which has so often been a tactic from the left, was now coming from the right. This activism was also extended to highlight companies which Trump supporters should be supporting, which brings us to the curious case of New Balance Shoes. New Balance was founded in Boston, Massachusetts in 1906 by British immigrant William J. Riley, originally designed to improve arch support and workers who spent most of their days standing for hours on end. New Balance has evolved into an all-encompassing athletic shoe company whose products are worn by everyone from mall-walking baby boomers to Boston Marathon runners to fashion-forward streetwear connoisseurs. One of the major tenets of the New Balance corporate philosophy is the commitment to making a majority of their products in the United States. Their shoes, shoeboxes, clothing, and ad campaigns are all proudly adorned with the Made in the USA imaging. The week after the election, New Balance VP of Public Affairs Matt LeBreton stated that things are going to move in the right direction with Trump as president, adding that the Obama administration had turned a deaf ear to New Balance. After hearing these remarks, angry customers took to social media, castigating LeBreton and New Balance for what they perceived to be pro-Trump comments. The problem, as it often is, was that these enraged customers only had half the story. According to the company, LeBreton's statements were made specifically in reference to the Trans-Pacific Partnership. One of our officials was recently asked to comment on a trade policy that was taken out of context, New Balance said in a statement following the social media furor. The TPP would reduce tariffs and quotas on imported goods, but opponents have warned that the pact would cost jobs in the United States. As a 110-year-old company with five factories in the U.S. and thousands of employees worldwide from all races, genders, cultures, and sexual orientations, New Balance is a values-driven organization and culture that believes in humanity, integrity, community, and mutual respect for people around the world, said the company, which has been outspoken about its dislike for the Trans-Pacific Partnership. We have been and will always be committed to manufacturing in the United States. In the days following the original story, white supremacist website The Daily Stormer, which had gained notoriety during the election for its courting of the more bigoted fringe elements of the right wing, published an article praising New Balance for being, quote, the official brand of the Trump revolution, in addition to calling New Balance the official shoes of white people. This, of course, sent the company scrambling to issue a statement disavowing the Daily Stormer article, stating that New Balance does not tolerate hate or bigotry in any form. The company found itself in the ultimate catch-22. They had made a statement about TPP that was construed as political and caught heat from the left and were forced to walk it back. Then they received praise from a fringe element on the right and were forced to disavow. If it sounds like a no-win situation, that's because in a lot of ways it is, and this is a problem that will only continue to grow as companies attempt to navigate this increasingly fractured political climate. So what lessons can be learned from the examples of Pepsi, Grubhub, New Balance, and others? The men and women who lead these companies are the brand, and they must carefully consider their reputations, their points of view, their actions, and the causes and beliefs they may support and publicize. 
Elections and causes come and go, but a leader's reputation and the fortunes of the companies and the people they serve is a precious asset that can't be risked. We live in a time of unparalleled change, where the forces of digital disruption and the evolving workforce are unleashing seismic waves across the global business landscape. We see the effects of change as we look at the world through a different lens. The age of accelerating change articulated by futurist and inventor Ray Kurzweil in 2003 is pulling us forward at warp speed. To illustrate his expectations for exponential growth, Kurzweil predicted the 21st century will be the equivalent to 20,000 years of progress at today's rate of change. Moore's law, which holds that computing power doubles every two years, still rules the world of integrated circuits. And the mind steps elucidated by author Gerald Hawkins in his book, Mind Steps to the Cosmos, remind us that the periods of time that separate major points of change in our world are getting shorter every day. What does change mean for the men and women in companies who as consumers expect consistency in brand interactions across channels and who long for a more engaging user experience with the information technologies and technical support their employers provide? We've entered the age of the cognitive workplace where work and life merge in a virtual space with applications, services, and information on demand where users access the technology, data, and analytics they need, when they need it, on whatever device they prefer to use. To learn more, I spoke with Rich Esposito, IBM's General Manager of Mobility Services. I think if you look at how we, we live every day, you know, as a consumer, we are engaging in different ways and we are creating volumes of data, and as we see how the enterprises are working uh, today, uh, you know, we need to treat and, and have the same experience that we have in our consumer lives. Very similar, we need to have that experience available to us in the enterprise so that we can improve the productivity of the employee, we can provide them with the right um, access, the right apps, the right security measures, um, so that they can uh, do their work. So the work life, while it's, uh, you know, blurring uh, every single day is happening more and more at a rapid rate and pace. So we do think that this cognitive capability in the workplace is truly transformational. While employees today long for a workplace that delivers information anywhere, anytime, and on the devices they favor, Esposito said these features can be a management nightmare for chief information officers whose systems can be swamped by offering too many choices and by heavy demands for storing, managing, and retrieving information. He said the average employee is distracted by IT system disruptions once every 11 minutes, and when they're back up and running, they need about 25 more minutes to refocus on tasks. People compensate for these breakdowns by working faster, but not necessarily more effectively, and they induce more stress, higher levels of frustration, and more time pressures, and that ultimately affects a company's profits. Historically, uh, most enterprises have treated the workplace and the employee in what I would characterize as a one-size-fits-all fashion, which is to say everybody gets the same device, the same access to applications, uh, the same support services. 
whether you have 100 people or 100,000 people. And that's changed dramatically. Today, uh, if I am a sales rep on the road, I need a different level of access and applications and even support than um, a person who might be uh, an engineer or an architect working in an office. Uh, so there are, I think, a, a huge differences in the way that people, uh, in the way that enterprises need to uh, address and provide and deliver those sets of services to the employee based on their requirements. And we call that a persona-based approach. So we uh, now, rather than a one-size-fits-all, uh, having a, set, a strategy based on that, uh, it's really a user-based experience. How do we, within the enterprise, deliver a consumer-like experience to the employee to improve productivity, to uh, deliver the applications that they need uh, in a secured environment and prov provide the right set of services for their particular job? That's the goal and do that in a cost-effective manner. What matters for most employees is what's on the glass, so to speak. When they use their MacBooks, iPads, or iPhones, they want to be able to access a set of applications, data, and analytics needed for their jobs. They want the right kind of support from multiple channels that best fit their preferences, including systems like IBM's Watson. I think there are vast changes that are happening uh, given the convergence of the consumer market and the enterprise uh, market and uh, lots of changes that are occurring, but primarily, uh, number one, uh, a, a focus on the end user experience versus the one size fits all. Number two, I would say the vast amounts of data that is being generated, an individual or sets of individuals or programmers cannot make sense out of that much data that is coming through in structured and unstructured uh, ways. I mean, we have voice, video, text, all kinds of data. So vast amounts of data, which is where cognition comes into play. And then the third part I'd mention actually is around the cloud-based services. I mean, people want to pay for what they consume. Uh, they want it as a service. And so th this convergence of the consumer and enterprise market, I think, are creating those three types of challenges in the workplace. And what do these challenges and changes mean for the CIO and their IT organization? Esposito said they need a greater understanding of how the business operates and how to develop, brand, and deliver world-class IT services and solutions. Additionally, he said the cognitive workplace would be incomplete without a new way for measuring what success looks like. That means going well beyond a simple box-ticking exercise that's associated with closing out a job ticket. The IT organization needs to rethink how they measure themselves in this new era. Meaning that, uh, you know, closing, tick, closing the number of tickets very quickly, which is a typical uh, measurement for an IT organization or a service desk, may not be the primary indicator any longer. Um, it, it could be how was the experience. So, you know, if you think about it, whether I am satisfied or not is one way to determine uh, the, the performance of an IT organization, and it certainly is one indicator. And the number of tickets that they close and 
the efficiency with which they closed those tickets. But was the experience something that the employee would say was a fabulous experience? So when I was getting help or support, did I have an outstanding experience? I could be satisfied that you closed my ticket, but I may not have had an outstanding experience. And there is a subtle but, I think, important uh, distinction in how we measure the IT organization. So thinking about uh, an experience metric in addition to satisfaction metrics, um, in addition to some of the more traditional efficiency metrics, which some may work now and some may not in the new world, is all critically important because as we know, measurements drive behavior and behavior impacts overall productivity and performance for the entire enterprise. So I think CIOs need to rethink uh, how they are delivering a superior experience and how they are measuring themselves against that. Finally, we can talk about the efficiencies that come from these changes, those being a reduction in the number of calls, complaints, and contacts that the help desk receives thanks to new cognitive capabilities and gains in productivity and employee satisfaction. However, the biggest benefits may be in culture and behaviors. I've always said culture wins over strategy every time. If you cannot uh, adjust and calibrate the culture to execute upon the strategy, the strategy has a very narrow path to success. So I do think that uh, the qualitative benefits of changing culture uh, changing behaviors is equally important. And when we start to deploy modern tools, modern devices, modern types of support to the employee, which is visible to the employee, the employee starts to see that the organization is invested in them, that uh, this is kind of a cool place to work, um, that uh, this is you know, I, I, I am ha, have a feeling of uh, belonging to an organization which is about growth and about innovation. The Arthur W. Page Society study, The New CCO, Transforming Enterprises in a Changing World, spotlights the key role of today's chief communications officers as integrators who work together with the CEO and other members of the C-suite including the CIO on cybersecurity and digital engagement platforms. We have a shared responsibility to collaborate on both activating corporate character and engaging stakeholders around it through all the channels available to the enterprise, including the cognitive workplace that touches every employee. Stephen Covey, the iconic author and motivational speaker, once said, we must look at the lens through which we see the world, as well as the world we see, and that the lens itself shapes how we interpret the world. As communication strategists, we must see the world through another lens to learn what others experience and how we can apply it in our work. That's it for another edition of Walking the Labyrinth. 
If you like what you heard, please take a minute to rate and review us on iTunes. You can always reach out to us with a question or a comment by emailing us at podcast at graceandemmett.com. You can follow me on Twitter at S. Keith Burton, and you can visit our website at www.graceandemmettpartners.com. Walking in the Labyrinth is produced by Keith and Jarrett Burton for Grace and Emmett Partners. Until next time.